Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Welcome back. This week we're going to cover a new disaster, a train derailment. Obviously you all know what a train is, so I don't need to go much into detail on what that is. And a train derailment is when a train leaves the track for pretty much any reason. Those can be a broken wheel, a broken rail, a collision with something on the tracks, a collision with another train, etc. Most of the time, those derailments are nothing major. I see them at work all the time. One of the major things that my work works on is actually train derailments. Every once in a while, though, a series of unfortunate events occurs and you get a catastrophic disaster. And we're going to talk about one of those this week. This week, we will cover the Big Bayou Cannot Rail disaster. So really, this disaster is two stories at once. One story takes place on the towboat Mavilla. The other takes place on the Amtrak train, the Sunset Limited. These stories happen essentially simultaneously, but I'm going to start with the story of the towboat Mavilla. The Mavilla was just a small towboat that traveled up and down the Mobile River, pushing heavy barges. It would push anything from steel beams to wood chips to coal sludge to any kind of stuff that could fit on a barge. On the night of September 21st through the 22nd, 1993, the Mavilla was leaving the port of Mobile, headed up the Mobile River with six heavy barges being piloted by a man by the name of Willie Odom. The barges were arranged with three in front and then three directly behind that, and then the Mavilla pushing the middle barge in the back. In total, the whole system was 480 feet long and about 105 feet wide. So a single barge is about 205 feet and about 33 feet wide. And the whole thing was all those added together, plus the length of the Mobilla in the very back. Willie's job was to steer the ship along the Mobile River, the river he had been working on since at least 1980, and he claimed to know the river real well and had gone to work that night without any navigational charts whatsoever. In fact, he'd been told by multiple people at several times throughout his employment that he needed to work towards not needing the charts to navigate the river, so he frequently just didn't bring them along. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see where this is going. His trip that night was to take him up north of Tuscaloosa near Birmingham with all six barges. He was basically going to take the Mobile River the entire way up. Everything was fairly normal that night, September 21st, 1993. Although as he was getting ready to leave the port in Mobile, he received reports from other boats upriver that it was a bit foggy farther up the river. He took a mental note of that, and then the Mobile pushed off, headed upstream, and left around 12.55 a.m. on September 22, 1993. Now, real quick before we get further into this story of the Mobile going up the river... I want to take a moment to describe the layout of the Mobile River area, especially around Mobile, Alabama. It is swampy. There are several rivers that branch off the Mobile in this area. If you're new or you don't really know your way around, you can very easily get stuck or lost. Or, if a boatload of fog rolls in, you can't see very well, it's very easy to make a wrong turn down a wrong river. Because there's just that many rivers and bayous going off of the Mobile River. It's basically just one giant swampy area, and you need to know the river real well in order to not get stuck or go somewhere you can't get back out of or whatever. 
So you travel up, you pass several rivers, and once you get to an island called Twelve Mile Island, I'm not kidding, that is the name of the island, it is called Twelve Mile Island, you go left, so you go west around the side of the Twelve Mile Island down what is called Bayou Sara. And it has lit up markings to guide you because Bayou Sara is an Army Corps of Engineer designed river to help large barges get through that area, whereas the Mobile River on the east side isn't as deep and isn't as wide. So they have them go around the left side. So Willie's traveling up with the Malvillo. They have no problems. They get to the south side of 12 Mile Island. And that's where the problem started. So remember, he's traveling south to north, so away from the Gulf of Mexico. Willie is approaching the south end of 12 Mile Island and notice it's starting to get a bit hazy, like there was some fog rolling in which he knew about from being told before he left the actual port. And if there's one thing that's super common in the Deep South, especially along the Gulf and the bayous just inland, it's fog, and it is thick, thick fog. Willie is just getting to the edge of the fog that had begun to settle over the area north of 12 Mile Island. Concerned, but still moving, the Malvilla headed further upriver around the edge of 12 Mile Island. Just over halfway around 12 Mile Island is the Catfish Bayou, a small river that winds northwest away from 12 Mile Island. Catfish Bayou has several markings before it and after it to let you know where you are and to let you know that you are on the right side of 12 Mile Island. But it was right about here where the Malvilla and Willie hit the real fog. It was no longer just hazy. It was impossible to steer the boat. Visibility got down to at most 200 feet. Now remember, the whole thing, barges and pushboat included, was about 480 feet long. The barges alone were 395 feet long, so with visibility on the river down to about 200 feet, he could barely see the end of the first set of barges, let alone the set of barges past that, and literally anything else beyond that on the river. He's in a real pickle at this point because he has to be able to see to steer the boat. And once you get past the halfway point of 12 Mile Island, the river curves back to the east and runs almost due east before meeting back up with the Mobile River before the big bayou cannot turn sharply back towards the west. And then the Mobile River turns back towards the east. It's, the route you're supposed to take is to cross over the spot where the big bayou and Mobile meet and continue up the Mobile River. Basically, it's like a giant figure eight. So you go up to the front port of 12 Mile Island on the south part. You take the left side, you go around, you curve, so you start going out towards the west, and then you curve around, you start heading back towards the east, and you need to continue on an, an almost easterly heading, more like a northeasterly heading, to go across where they meet back up, so you stay in the Mobile River. That is not what happened here. He was supposed to continue going straight, but Willie noticed that his swing meter, basically a device that tells you how far you're turning one way or another basically, was indicating that they were moving to port which is left. But his radar showed him between the banks of some river, which was what he wanted because he couldn't see the banks because the fog was so thick. Unfortunately, he was between the banks of the wrong river. He did not know that though. He also could not run the radar properly and did not know how to gauge distance on the radar. 
But once he realized he could no longer see the shore and he couldn't see the end of his own boat, he realized he probably should tie off somewhere and wait out the fog. Which makes logical sense. It's not like he could actually steer the boat and not run into the shore when he can't see the banks of the river. It's kind of important to be able to, you know, steer. So he sent one of his deckhands up to the front of the barge to try and toss a rope around a tree to tie off to, because he couldn't see the banks of the river anymore, because the fog was so thick, like I said. That deckhand went to the starboard side of the barges. That's the right side of the barges. And he got there, and tossed a rope, and missed. And then he tried to toss a rope around a wire he saw connected to another tree, and he also missed with that one. Hearing that they missed both, Wheelie decided to swing the boat back towards the middle of the river and travel a bit farther upriver to a tree he knew was there from previous instances of having to hang out till fog dissipated. Unfortunately, that only works if you're on the right river. They were not on the right river, therefore this tree was not going to appear. The deckhand was ordered back off the starboard side of the barges, back to the galley. No one was up front to see if anything was coming up. They were essentially relying entirely on radar. Unfortunately, Willie had received no training on how to properly use that radar, so he was more or less guessing on where things were. And he had no lookout up front. Remember, he cannot see past the middle of his boat, let alone the front of it. He cannot see the sides of his boat. He is flying entirely reliant on radar. I say flying, I mean boating. Same difference. At this point, his best option would be to swing the barges towards where the bank is and just shove them into the dirt and wait. But unfortunately, that's not what Willie decided to do. Not long after swinging back out into the river to find the next tree, the tree that was on a completely different river, mind you, he witnessed an object on the radar. This object stretched from one bank to the other bank, and he thought it was another toad that had managed to hook onto a tree and was waiting out the fog like he was planning to do. Thinking he'd finally found something to help him out of this mess he was in, he kept moving towards it, hoping he could tie off to it and wait out the fog, too. He did radio out to another boat, the Tom McCabe, which was further upriver, to ask if they'd seen an object across the river, and were told no, they hadn't seen anything like that. Despite that, for some reason, he still believed it was another boat, and continued on towards it. At no point did he see any nav navigation lights from whatever this was. He saw no searchlights. He saw nothing that would indicate that it was another towboat. He was actively told by another boat that there was nothing else there. Now, in Willie's defense, he couldn't see the end of his own boat, so who knows if it was actually a boat or not. And I guess it's possible that their radio was just not working, but, again, you were told that another boat had gone through that area and didn't see anything else there. So, why would you think it's another boat? The next thing he tried after being told that there was no boat there was the radio. He called out to it on the radio. No response. Called again. No response. Still steering the whole boat at it, but getting absolutely nothing on radio. He called the radio. He called over the radio to whatever this thing was multiple times and got absolutely no response and yet to continued to steer his entire ship towards it. He then swung the searchlight towards the object, 
but he couldn't even see the banks of the river with the searchlight, and they were closer than the end of his own boat, which, again, he could not see. I really just want to hammer home the fact that this man continued to go down this river while not being able to see the end of his own boat. After not receiving anything on the radio, again, he looked back at the radar, which, again, he cannot tell distance with, and attempted to guesstimate how far whatever this unknown thing on the radar was from the front of his boat. He did not succeed. Again, he had no training on how to use this radar. He just knew the thing was there, and he might be able to tie off to it. So I want to put the situation he is currently in into full context before I get into the next part. By this point, it is about 2.40 a.m. The fog was so thick that Willie Odom could not see the end of his own barges, let alone the riverbank. The searchlights were not strong enough to pierce through the fog to see the banks of the river. He has no lookout. He does not know how to properly use the radar. He has no charts. He has no compass. He has radioed the thing he sees on the radar, and it has not answered multiple times. Another boat farther upriver did answer and said that they saw nothing like that on the river when they went past. He cannot see any navigation lights or any discernible features of this thing as he is approaching whatever it is. He is, unbeknownst to him at this point, down the wrong river. Basically every single thing is screaming at him to stop where he is and not approach this. It isn't supposed to be there. No one else has seen it. It is not responding to radio calls. He should stop and figure something else out. That, of course, is not what he did. Just as it approached the front of his barge, best he could tell, on radar, he threw the engines in reverse. Just as he did so, he felt a bump. That bump is probably the understatement of this entire episode. Realizing whatever he had hit had ripped two of the barges off of their connections, he backed the Marvilla up into a bank and became trapped there. Willie then opened a window to tell the deckhand they had lost some of the barges. That was about 2.45 a.m. Just a few minutes later, Willie describes hearing a whooshing sound. That whooshing sound was the Sunset Limited launching off its tracks into the river below. The Sunset Limited was an Amtrak train that was traveling from Los Angeles, California to Miami, Florida. It had been a pretty uneventful ride on the train. They had one stopover in New Orleans that had delayed them about 34 minutes or so on some equipment that had malfunctioned, a toilet and the air conditioner, but nothing too much to complain about. Unfortunately, that 34-minute delay was the difference between life and death for many of the riders of the Sunset Limited. The Sunset Limited was traveling along the railroad line that ran up through the area headed towards the Big Bayou Cannot Bridge. The bridge was initially designed to be a movable swing bridge, so it could basically spin in the middle to allow taller boats to run through the area. But this was eventually scrapped and made into a fixed bridge. But the pivot mechanism was never removed. Aboard the Sunset Limited, everything was going smoothly. The 220 passengers were resting peacefully, planning for the next day, preparing for them to stop, or just getting settled in to enjoy the ride, maybe reading a book, hanging out with family, Taking a nap, they were traveling at a comfortable 72 miles per hour and weren't that far behind schedule necessarily. Many people were asleep, and it was almost 3 a.m. after all. 
But then something went horribly, horribly wrong. You see the bump Willie felt aboard the Ma Villa? That wasn't the bank or even another boat. That was the big Bayou Cannot Bridge. When he hit it, he'd knocked the truss about 36 inches out of place. That's basically a third of the width of an Amtrak train. The bridge had slightly rotated on that previous pivot mechanism that had never been removed and put the truss of the bridge directly in the path of the oncoming Sunset Limited. But it didn't break the rails. It only bent them. This meant that the engineer had absolutely no idea that the bridge was out of place because the circuit in the rail never broke to indicate something was wrong. He also would have no idea the bridge was not properly aligned because it wasn't actually a swing bridge. If it were an actual spring bridge, it would have a warning mechanism as they were approaching it to let them know that it was out of line. All of this led to the lead locomotive smashing into the truss at a whopping 72 miles per hour, collapsing the bridge and sending the first three locomotives, the baggage car, the crew dorm, and two passenger cars tumbling down to the 20-foot deep water below. And just for reference, the single lead locomotive weighed a whopping 340 tons. That lead locomotive, the 340-ton one, was launched across the Connaught and buried 45 feet in the mud. The three Amtrak engineers were in the lead locomotive. None would survive. And then, somehow, it got worse. The fuel tanks for the locomotives ruptured and burst into flames. And because fuel and water don't mix, that fuel sat on the surface of the river and burned, allowing it to spread to the other cars that were still sitting above the water. Charlie Jones was a bartender on the train. He'd gotten on for work in New Orleans and was resting in bed in the crew dorm car. All of a sudden, he was woken up by being violently tossed into the wall underneath two beds. Dazed and a bit confused, he managed to lift up the beds blocking the doorway to his room and make it into the hallway. Once he was out there, he could fr hear his friend Roland Quainton screaming, Please help me, I'm beginning to burn from a nearby room. He could hear Roland screaming and screaming as he burned alive. Charlie did his best to get his friend out, but the door was jammed shut and he couldn't get it open. Eventually, Charlie would crawl out of the top of the car and swim to the nearby Malvilla to safety. Back in one of the passenger cars, Andrea Chansey was just 11 years old on her first train ride with her parents. She was trying hard to fall asleep, laying her head on her mother's lap while her mom rubbed her back trying to soothe her to sleep. All of a sudden, there was a sudden jerking moment, and then everything went black. She does not remember what happened, but a rescuer says that he was trying to help people climb out of the rapidly sinking coach car, when all of a sudden, a single arm shot up out of the water with Andrea sitting on top. Whoever pushed her up out of the water never made it out of the water below, but Andrea survived. Both of her parents would be lost in the train wreck, and she believes that it was one of her parents that shoved her up out of the water to save her over themselves. Michael Dofied was asleep in one of the coach cars, curled up on two chairs. You know how you used to try and sleep in the car when your parents weren't paying attention way back in the back of the minivan on long car rides? Well... All of a sudden, he was jolted awake by being tossed into the back of the chairs in front of him. The train shuddered a few times and shook him around on the floor between the seats before finally stopping. He remembers hearing a loud roaring sound, but not much else. The only light he had was from the fire in the next car over 
and a flashlight he happened to have on him. Water was rapidly filling up the coach car where he was at, so he climbed over seats and up the way to get to the other end where there was an exit. He managed to find an open window and a smaller boat showed up to help ferry victims away. Michael pulled each person floating in the water up by the arm and helped them out onto boats or floating debris nearby to hang out until they could be rescued. He waited in the train car that was actively sinking under the water until each and every person was out of the car before he stepped off. Even after the last person he could find was pulled out, he went back into the car to make sure he'd gotten everyone out that he could before he rescued himself. Gary Farmer was the assistant conductor on the Sunset Limited. He had gotten on for his work shift in New Orleans, and everything was normal. Everyone was in a good mood and happy to be working together. They stopped in Mobile, and he brought some donuts and coffee up to the baggage car for the engineers working the locomotive. That was the last time he would see them alive. Gary then walked back through the train to the dining car and sat with the conductor and an attendant. The last time anyone would hear from the engineers in the lead locomotive was engineer B.R. Hall calling back on the radio, thanking them for bringing them the coffee and donuts. They'd finished up whatever they were working on and were chatting with the attendant about the possibility of him getting a promotion and becoming an assistant conductor when Gary described a feeling like flying into a mountain. There was no warning. There were no air brakes, no horn blast, just a massive impact that sent them flying across the dining car, all landing on top of each other, getting hit with plates and silverware and cups and whatever else was flying around the dining car as it smashed into the bridge. Then, there were several more impacts, probably four or five. Gary thinks that was the cars impacting each other as the other cars fell off the end of the bridge. Once they had landed and stopped moving, Gary got up and forced his way into the next car, and then the car after that, and the car after that. Once he reached the final car, he had a horrible realization. The bridge was gone. The cars that should have been in front of the one he was standing in were in the river. He could see two cars sinking and several more on fire in front of him. And then he realized an even more terrifying issue. The car he was currently standing in was dangling at least 30 feet out into the open night air over the river. Realizing that this car could end up in the river as well with, you know, him standing on it and all those people in the car behind him, at least 70. So he turned around and announced who he was and ordered everyone out like a fire drill in school. And it worked. He then instructed one of the workers on the train to go down to the bank and set up a rescue operation to pull people swimming in the water out. After that, Gary realized that he needed to get to the sinking train car. So he dove into the water and began to swim towards one of the sinking coach cars. But before he could get there, it completely sank under the water. Thinking quickly, he told the people swimming around the now-disappeared coach car to swim towards the shore away from the massive burning locomotives and the potentially further collapsing bridge, then waved down the nearby Malvilla. From on board the Malvilla, he led rescue operations to pull people out of the burning coach cars in the water. After that, he went back up on top of the bridge and helped to pass out blankets and pillows and even thought to pull the cushions off the seats of the remaining cars so the passengers wouldn't have to sit in the gravel. Many of those on board the coach car most likely drowned in the dark, not knowing what in the world just happened. There was a bump, a loud rushing noise, 
a hard crash, and then water everywhere. The only light they might have seen would be the flames of the diesel fuel burning on top of the water, either directly above them, or in the case of the crew car, it was burning where they were, and their only option was to maybe try and make it below the water before they burned alive. Both of those options are terrible. Choosing between burning alive and drowning is probably the worst would-you-rather in the history of would-you-rathers. Because, unfortunately, I have seen what happens when people burn alive, and it has to be miserable. And drowning, knowing that you just have to hold your breath and hope, and that hope slowly running out as you have to gasp for that air, and there's no air, it's just water, that also has to be terrible. This was a horrible, horrible event. Multiple crew members burnt to death, trapped inside their area, inside the crew car. They didn't have a choice. It was burned to death, and there was nothing else they would have been able to do. The Mobile Fire Department was up against the wall responding to this incident. There were numerous problems that hampered their ability to respond. First, the wrong location was given out where the incident occurred. This delayed first responders in arriving to the scene. Second, there were no roads near the derailment site. Everything had to be brought in by boat or a rescue train. Third, it was still insanely foggy, like zero visibility foggy, so they were having problems finding it even after they were given the correct location. Numerous first responders and survivors reiterated that the only way they could see anything at all was by the light of the burning train cars. So when you arrive on scene, you have all of this fog. You can't barely see the end of your own boat. You pull up and you have multiple burning cars. Your fog lights are not working. You don't know where victims are in the water because it's likely that they have self-extricated from these coach cars because obviously the coach cars are sinking and they don't want to be in there while they're sinking. So they could be floating on debris in the water. They could just be floating free in the water, just treading water, hoping someone will find them. So... Not only do you can you not see anything, you have to travel extremely slowly to make sure that you don't hit someone floating in the water because nothing would be worse than them surviving this train crash, making their way out of the coach car, floating there for almost an hour before the actual fire department got there, and then getting hit with a boat and killed by the fire department. That's got to be an awful way to go. Luckily, this... That apparently did not happen here. There's no evidence that it happened here. Just a hypothetical. But still, for the fire department, they have to travel at a ridiculously low rate of speed, knowing that people are actively drowning, actively burning to death, and actively getting more and more tired as they float in this water and could potentially end up drowning to death, waiting for them to get there after surviving the initial incident. That would be stressful, driving a boat like that. On top of the fact that if you put out the fires, where there may be people still alive, your visibility is going to drop even further than it already is. So, really, you don't have any good options here. I mean, you obviously have to put the fire out because you can't let the fire continue to burn. There might be people in there. 
but then you make it even more complicated for yourself because you don't have lights that are going to get through the fog to be able to see where anything is. It was, they're at a bad situation here. And with there being no roads, their command post was literally back down in Mobile, some 10 miles away, because that was the closest location to the site that anyone with a vehicle could get to. It took almost a full hour before rescue workers could actually reach the scene, and by that time, it wasn't so much a rescue effort as it was a recovery effort. Between the efforts of the crew members and the members of the Mavilla, all of the survivors were pulled out of the train cars and the water before the fire department even got there. And that was when they realized, upon their arrival, that they weren't going to be doing any rescuing. The only thing they had left to do was body recovery. It took a full three days to get all 47 victims of this crash out of the water and find all of their remains. So obviously we know what happened here. A big boat hit a bridge. But that doesn't really get to the why of why this happened or the how of how this happened. In the investigations afterwards, the National Transportation Safety Board waffled like cowards on ruling if this was an accident caused by oversight of the bridges or the lack of training by the company that owned the Mauville, Warrior, and Gulf Navigation Company. But the truth of the matter is, it was both. And if the National Transportation Safety Board had any kind of courage at all, they would have come out and said that. Instead of, well, you know, well, it could have been this, it could have been that, blah, 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 blah. Warrior and Gulf absolutely should have performed better training for their employees. All of Willie Odom's training was done, quote, on the job. We all know that means it's done by whoever has the time and patience, and they're not taught why to do something, just how to do it as quickly as possible so everyone can get their work done quickly so they can go home. I have had lots of on-the-job training. It is not training. It's, this is how I do it. I don't know why I do it that way. It's probably not the way they're going to tell you to do it safely, but it gets the job done, and it gets the job done quickly. That's what Willie Odom's training was. That's why he didn't have a compass. That's why he didn't have navigation charts. That's why he didn't have a map. And that's why he didn't know how to use the radar properly. He was told, look at this. Make sure you're between the banks. Keep going straight. If something's in front of you, try and steer away from it. That's basically all he got how to use on the radar. And on-the-job training is never going to be enough training. No matter what people want to say. No matter what the experienced people want to say that, oh, working the job is the best training you can get. And true, getting experience is important, but you also need that in the books, in the classroom training to really know and understand how and why and what you need to do in these emergency situations. Proper training is one of the most important things for safety. The second most important thing for safety is proper standard operating procedures. And everybody finds these boring and they always cut corners. But the truth is that they didn't have any standing, standard operating procedures on what to do if you found yourself in basically zero visibility fog. There was stuff that they had done before where, you know, you can keep going upriver to find a tree that you know is there or you can go try and find a tree on the bank, but they didn't teach them how to push the barges into the bank to stop and wait 
he knew it was a thing that you could do, but he didn't actually do it because he'd never done it before. He'd always used the same tree, or any tree really, and he thought that he could make it. And this comes back to training. He wasn't taught how to use the radar, and so when he found himself in an unfamiliar area that he didn't know was an unfamiliar area, with an unfamiliar sight in front of him on the radar, he didn't know what to do because he didn't have a standard operating procedure telling him what to do. I realize that I sound really boring right now with my training and safety and all that, but it's really important. If they had some kind of procedure to explain what to do in this foggy situation, this disaster may not have happened, and those 47 people would still be alive. But they didn't. But Warrior and Gulf is not the only people to blame. We're not going to let the other half of this equation off scot-free. The bridge was also a problem. The bridge was owned by CSX, which is a rail company. It had zero lights on it, zero markings, no bumpers, absolutely no way of seeing the bridge before you got to it to hit it. Even if it wasn't super foggy outside, it still had nothing denoting that there was a bridge there. I mean, to be fair, standard bridge lights and markings are made to be seen 200 feet away and, well, it was foggy and you could barely see the end of your own boat, so it really wouldn't have mattered, but still, they needed to have something to let them know that, hey, there's a bridge coming up. And the other issue is that I want to touch on real fast was there was no markings on the river on either side to tell him he was going down the wrong way. There were no buoys in the water. There was nothing like that to say, hey, this is the wrong river. You're going the wrong direction. And that ties in with the markings for the bridge. But the main issue here was this was originally built to be a swing bridge. But at some point, they decided that this was no longer going to be a swing bridge. And instead of just taking out the swinging mechanism and making it a permanent bridge, they just left it there. And the only thing that was solidly connected to either bank were the rails of the railroad. So it was not connected on either end of the bridge in the middle. All you had to do was bump it and moved that pivot in the middle, and it knocked it out of alignment. There were no iron bars connecting the bridges together, because there was a truss on one side, and then a part in the middle that was the swing bridge, and then a truss on the other side. There were no iron bars connecting the, the sides of the bridge. So it was basically, I mean, any boat that hit it would have moved it out of the way. And that's a major problem, because... There was no warning. It's not like rails don't get bent all the time. I've seen it at work. They get bent all the time. You can't just leave a swing bridge without a warning system letting the engineers that are driving trains by know that it could be out of alignment. It's likely that engineer had no idea that it was a swing bridge and just was obviously he never put on the brakes. He never tried to stop. He never saw it coming. It was so dark. They Even if he had seen it, he couldn't have stopped in time. It might have made it slightly better. But it was so dark and so foggy that he never saw that the bridge was out of alignment. There was no chance for them to do anything differently here aboard the train to avoid this disaster. 
but there was stuff that the owner of the bridge could have done and the owner of the boat could have done and the Coast Guard could have done to prevent this disaster because the Coast Guard gets some blame for this because they are the ones that should have put buoys in the water to let boats know that they were going up the wrong river and they didn't and CSX should have put some kind of warning system on the bridge to let boats know that there was a bridge there or permanently affixed the bridge to the actual bank rather than just the rails but they didn't and then warrior and gulf should have properly trained trained their pilot on how to use radar on how to travel the river on which way to go on what to do in zero visibility situations but they didn't and so this disaster falls on all of their heads this is one of those rare instances where everyone is at fault and everyone sucks in the aftermath, Willie Odom was charged in connection with the incident, but those charges were eventually dropped. He never piloted a boat again. The bridge was rebuilt and permanently affixed. They also installed warning lights on the bridge just in case. Towboats are now required to have maps, compasses, and radar with their pilot being proficient in using all of them. The other thing that was changed was Amtrak began using electronic rosters for all of its passengers, which had been an issue in the aftermath of the disaster because no one had an actual list of all the passengers to search for in the river, so it became a real headache trying to find everyone. Survivors of the disaster sued Amtrak and settled for an unspecified amount in the years after the disaster. The Sunset Limited still runs the line from Los Angeles, but now it terminates in New Orleans. In a weird continuation of this story, the Sunset Limited would again be derailed just two years later. Yes, the same train. This time, the derailment was caused by sabotage in Harqua, Arizona in the middle of the desert in which someone removed spikes from the track and managed to bypass the signal system, letting them know that the rails were messed up, and it flipped the train off a bridge. This sabotage killed one person and injured about a hundred more. The only known suspects is a group called the Sons of the Gestapo. They left anti-government manifestos in the area around where the disaster occurred. And that is literally all that's known about that. They were never found and apparently never struck again. There is now a memorial at the site of the Big Bayou Cannot Bridge. And just recently it was announced that the Sunset Limited Line would run again through Mobile, Alabama and potentially on to Florida in 2022 bringing the train over the spot where the worst disaster in Amtrak history occurred. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, Disastrous History, Disastrous H-S-T-R-Y, and on Instagram at Disastrous History, Disastrous History spelled correctly, and on TikTok, Disastrous History. Thank you guys once again for listening. As always, stay safe and check your smoke detector batteries.